0: Welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. No, you're not.
1: Stop. No, no. We're supposed to play the what? intro
0: first. I thought. No, just this is the intro. In post. I thought you were just going to no. do the that post. That's uh some shop talk for all you listeners out there.
2: Look
1: at oh, these now it's three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly
0: saying, "We the People." So back uh, to that intro. Yeah. Okay. All right. Shorter, welcome, to, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Trucial lead writer for the Lex Rex Institute.
1: And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, president of the Lex Rex Institute and a constitutional attorney, although I won't be speaking in that capacity today.
0: Before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute.
1: The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn more about our organization's activities or make a donation, you can visit us online at lexrex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X dot org. All
0: right, let's just get right into it. So those of you who follow us on Facebook may have seen this little interaction pop up where one of our listeners suggested something for our hot take segment that I had now,
1: We've got a Facebook group. It's called the Lex Rex Institute podcast. It's a private group, so it's very exclusive. We don't accept everybody who asks to be let in. But if you're interested in joining that group, it's probably a long, incomprehensible and unrememberable URL. But you can just search Lex Rex Institute podcast on Facebook. It'll come up.
0: Well, anyway, somebody... We'll
1: link it in the description, too.
0: Okay. Okay. Somebody suggested that we talk about this. Actually, not for the hot take segment. I, I misspoke. I wanted to do it for the hot take segment. I'd had it in the little folder that I keep for that. But somebody got ahead of me, posted it, which is, you know, that's that's great. We love people being engaged. But you saw the headline of this article, which kind of spoiled the whole thing, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I thought it was too good to pass up in general. So we're just going to talk about it right off the bat. So okay. let me uh, pull this up. And
1: so the, the headline here is, California court declares a bumblebee to be a
0: fish. hmm
1: That's, you know, that doesn't agree with the Charles Linnaeus classification. That doesn't agree with the Aristotelian classification. I don't know what classification that does agree with, frankly, other than whatever is employed by the state of California. So I have not read this article. Right. David, how did it come to be
0: well, that you, a
1: bee is now a fish in well, California?
0: You were talking about what classification system they were using. As it turns out, statutory. Um, ah, this is the from the California. Not as fish preferred and game as the Linnaeus
1: code. or the the Aristotle, but
0: no. But California's fish and game code evidently includes a definition of fish, which, as you can see here, well,
1: bumblebees aren't game.
0: No, but...
1: So they got to put them in one of those groups.
0: Well, we'll get to that in a second.
1: (laughs) I'm sure that's what it is, right? It's just got to be a statutory section saying fish includes these things, game includes these
0: things, right? I would assume... I haven't read the section other than what they quote here, but what they do quote here is the definition of fish that's given in the statute, which says, quote, a wild fish, mollusk, crustacean, invertebrate, amphibian or part spawn or ovum of any of those animals
1: so they they use the word in the definition i notice
0: they did it, yeah, but that's... I, I think critically here and this is i think what the the court was relying upon just says invertebrate yeah now, they seem to have taken the interpretation well, and that, I thought a
1: bumblebee is an invertebrate that's not disputable right.
0: and so i thought it would be an interesting exercise to and you know we'll, we'll try to keep this quick because we're trying to keep it Keep it moving here, but I thought it would be a fun little exercise to have you decide whether that's an appropriate interpretation under Blackstone's canons.
1: Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, you, so obviously first canon of interpretation is if the text is unambiguous, if the text of a statute's unambiguous, you stop right there. You just look at the text. Well, what does this say? Fish is defined as a wild fish, mollusk, crustacean, invertebrate, amphibian, or part spawn, or ovum of any of these animals. Very clearly a bumblebee is an invertebrate. Therefore under this statutory code, it is a fish. I wouldn't say that's a very good statutory code. (laughs) I wouldn't say that it's makes a lot of sense. I'll make fun of it, but (laughs) the the proper opinion for a judge to make, if he's ruling on this is yeah, bumblebee's a fish.
0: Uh, Yeah. I will will say, were I, you know, on the subcommittee that was responsible for developing the California Fish and Game Code. I feel like I might have recommended that they insert the word aquatic or marine before invertebrate. Perhaps.
1: But they didn't. They put wild.
0: Right. Well, Actually, is a bumble is a
1: bumblebee wild? So so generally under the common law, if there were no statutory definitions in place, a court would interpret wild to be as opposed to domesticated. I assume that's in play here too. I would, I would guess. and So no domesticated bumblebees are not fish, if there are such a thing.
0: I can't say I've ever heard of someone keeping bumblebees. Obviously, people keep honeybees. But actually, in, in fact, I think that's what the article writer went on to talk about, because he, he apparently kept bees as a as youth.
1: And he says he never confused them for fish. Yep. <laughs> well, that, that author is a fool, because he missed <laughs> that part of the definition that said wild. So his honeybees
0: were not fish. There you go. Oh, shoot. There was something I was going to bring up about this. Let me think. Oh, oh. Yeah. You made a comment about how a judge should interpret it versus how you might react to it. And, you know, we'll get a little more into this later. But that, that's
1: sort of our actually bigger topic for today. We're yep. going to talk about judicial philosophies. and
0: Exactly. You know, it, and your, uh, if, if you're a
1: judge that doesn't dislike his opinion some of the time, you're not doing a very good job.
0: At your strong insistence, I've been reading some of Neil Gorsuch's book. Oh, good, good. He actually has something directly on point here. He says, often enough, a good judge will look at a statute and immediately know three things. One, the law is telling me to do something really stupid. Two, (laughs) the law is perfectly constitutional. And three, if I follow the stupid but constitutional law, everyone who's not a lawyer is going to think I am stupid too. And that, I, case, I remember
1: that section from when I read it. That's a great section because he's absolutely right. You know, people always blame the judge for the bad ruling, even if it's very clearly what the law says on its face.
0: Yeah. And in this case, That's, it's very know,
1: well said, too. People are going to think I'm <laughs> stupid, too.
0: I feel like in this case, it fits perfectly. The court's hands were tied. You know, the the law says that invertebrates are fish. And unfortunately turns out bees are invertebrate and there's yeah. really nothing you can do about that. Anyway, we're going to go on now and, uh, talk about a headline item from this week. actually something new came out in this today that I'll share with you in a second, but you know, long story short, a guy got on a plane in California, got off in the suburbs of Washington, DC with a gun and burglary tools and was arrested outside the house of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. He,
1: as it turns out... An apparent assassination attempt of yeah. Justice Kavanaugh.
0: And as, as it turns out, the, the story gets a little stranger in some ways, but as he was approaching the home, who, you know, and I think this part is absolutely unconscionable, turns out multiple groups, activist groups online, had posted the locations of various Supreme court justices. I think I don't
1: know why they would even do that other than because they're trying to encourage people to exert political pressure on justices.
0: Yeah. But as he was approaching the home, he noticed, you know, security detail outside and apparently, you know, thankfully thought twice about it, turned himself in, in the end, called the police, talked through what he had, you know, been there to do and cooperated with law enforcement which obviously could have been much worse. But the fact that it got that far is obviously noteworthy in and of itself. And I think it, it's,
1: yeah, you know, it's difficult yeah, to avoid. Le- leaking a draft opinion of a Supreme Court case on a highly controversial and emotionally volatile subject that if it were to become the opinion of the court, would have a substantial and some might say extreme effect upon the state of the law in this country. You you can't possibly anticipate a result other than extreme politicization of the members of that court. Now, why this guy went after Kavanaugh, I don't know because the opinion was written by Justice Alito.
0: Yeah, and you know he he apparently talked to I think it was the FBI about that. Well, I'll I'll show you a bit more about that in a second, but
1: you know, yeah, because you know Brett Kavanaugh is not among. If you you were if you were to correlate people's opinions, the justices' opinions with different political leanings, he's not among the more conservative justices. And you know it can't just be that he's trying to get the seat filled by a liberal, so he's killing the youngest one because there are two other justices, two other conservative appointed justices that are younger than he is. So yeah, why and, Kavanaugh? That's strange to me.
0: It's. You know, I I think I agree with your analysis on his sort of relative position on the spectrum, conservative or liberal. I think there's a perception that he's especially right wing among certain quarters, at least. I think because he likes beer so much, or what? <laughs> well, I do. You know, you're alluding to his his hearing, his uh, confirmation yeah. hearing, <laughs> and I do think that played a part. More than likely, you know, there were the sexual assault allegations that were made against just him. Any
1: 17 year old that kept calendars as meticulous as his, must be a radical right-winger. What's the logic there? I don't follow.
0: Well, rightly or wrongly, you know, I think he got painted as a villain in certain people's minds because of the allegations that are made against him. Sure, but not in any way that
1: relates to Roe v. Wade.
0: I think that's more or less I I guess, you know,
1: murderers aren't probably the most rational people. We probably can't really explain his motives here, but it just seems odd to me. You'd think that he'd pick one of the conservative boogeymen, like, you know, one of the others.
0: <laughs> I think most people probably have an idea of who that would be. But, well, and, you know, again, as I said, he, he did sort of at least come to a crisis moment and back down from, from it. And he, you know, told the 911 dispatcher that he needed some psychiatric help. I think that seems, you know, evident.
1: Yeah, that does. But
0: the Washington Post actually obtained some audio of the call that he made. And I'll play that for you now and what, you know, what the listeners will be able to hear it too. It, you know, it's, it's fairly disturbing, as you can imagine. We'll take a listen. Tell
2: me exactly what happened. I am having thoughts. Tell me exactly what happened when you said these thoughts. i have been having them for a long time. I'm from California. I came over here to act on them. Are you thinking of hurting anyone, including yourself? Yes. Do you have access to any weapons? Yes. I, I I brought a firearm with me, but it's unloaded and locked in a case. Okay, and where's the firearm out? It's it's in a in a suitcase. It's a black suitcase. Um it's I'm standing near it, but the suitcase is zip tied shut from uh, I just came from the airport. Have you been using alcohol or drugs today? No. Do you need medical attention? I need I need psychiatric help. And you said you came from California? Do you know someone down here? Brett Kavanaugh. Okay. And you came alone? Correct. And what were you uh, coming to do? Just to hurt yourself and him or what was gonna happen? Correct. And again you're still sitting at the curve? I'm I'm standing now, but I, I can sit what whatever I, I, I want to be fully compliant, so whatever they want me to do, I'll do.
0: Anyway, that's where they cut off the recording.
1: Well, that's, you know, I don't, really, I don't want to say anything positive about this guy because obviously what he's doing is unconscionable, reprehensible in the extreme. But, you know, thank God that he had some self-awareness.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm, there, there's a further bit of irony here. You know, I don't mean to make light of it. Obviously, this is a horrible thing. You know, any public figure being assassinated is is no not good. But I think it's very strange and ironic that he apparently told, or, or I should say, according to the FBI affidavit that was, um, you know, reported on by the by the Post, it they claim that he said this guy, this would be assassin that he was concerned that Kavanaugh would, quote, loosen gun control laws. Wait, this
1: guy that was able to bring his gun on a plane? Yeah. Wait,
0: what? Yeah. So he, he said something about in the in, you know, in the wake of the shootings in Texas that he was concerned about Kavanaugh's possible influence on Second Amendment cases. So, his solution to that was apparently going to be. To so, kill the him very guy.
1: right that allows you to attempt to assassinate a Supreme Court justice is a right that he is worried that other people will have. He wants to be the only guy
0: that has that right? Or at least he did. <laughs> Maybe he regrets that he had that right in the aftermath of all yeah. this. Yeah, well,
1: I'll tell you, nobody actually has a right to attempt to assassinate anybody. That's Correct. actually illegal. That's called yep. attempted murder. Yep. So. He already doesn't have that right you know shocker that's that may be surprising yeah so as far as the right to carry weapons yeah i that's very strange
0: yeah and it's again sort of darkly ironic that there's been a lot of sort of snide remarks online that i've seen lately about oh, you know, Congress can take action to increase security for Supreme Court justices, but can't do that for the schools, blah, 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 whatever.
1: Well, schools are all state and local. Supreme <laughs> Court is a federal body. Yeah. So that, that actually makes perfect sense.
0: Yeah, and there's... You in know, fact, there's we get into that
1: of- in uh, last Friday's Ask an Attorney video, I talk about the Commerce Clause to the Constitution. And I mentioned that one of the few places that that grossly abused clause has been stopped in its tracks was when Congress tried to regulate guns in schools. Because, of course, schools are not commerce. Schools do not engage in activity between states. There's just no argument there that Congress has the power to regulate that.
0: Yeah. So anyway, there's, there's obviously all kinds of legal issues around that sort of commentary. But I think, you know, again, dark, but, you know, in a very i I'm not sure why anybody of...
1: would want Congress to regulate guns in schools. It's well. not a Congress's business.
0: Some people want Congress to do everything for them, and that's, you know.
1: Tuck them in at night. There's no, no you know, Department of Tucking In. Is that a huge abuse that Congress is engaged in?
0: I I misheard you, and I thought you said taco minute night.
1: Um, That too, yeah, where I get a taco in one minute from when I demand it. That actually probably would be interstate commerce if they regulated that.
0: I can't remember. (laughs) The court
1: would probably uphold that one.
0: Yeah. I can't remember where I heard someone say this, but I you know, it struck me as a pretty pithy way of summarizing people's feelings a lot of the times that in America today all issues are political issues and all political issues are federal issues. Yeah. And I think that, that continues to hold true. But in this case, Yeah, man, you know, if you
1: can't see the difference between the Supreme Court, a quintessentially federal body mm-hmm. and schools, you need to take remedial civics.
0: Yeah. But in then, you know, Perversely amusing in that, within like a week of people making these jokes about, oh, you know, of course they'll protect, blah blah blah. You know, in fact, somebody tried to attack a Supreme Court justice and was deterred by his security detail. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yep. it's true.
1: Well, I hope I hope this guy gets the treatment that he needs. It's yeah. It, it honestly, that recording was sad. Yeah. He did a horrible thing, but doing a horrible thing doesn't mean you're a horrible guy. I really, I sincerely do wish him the best. I hope he gets the treatment that he needs and you yeah. know, can return to a happy life.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it didn't have the worst possible outcome here, but I hope that, you know, this m- could serve as a reminder for people that you don't need to make everything into a massive public outcry you know when it
1: full stop you don't you need know. to make everything into a massive public outcry
0: yeah and as well again we'll, this will be sort of our a feature of our main conversation i should say but especially when it comes to what is meant to be and is in fact the non-political branch of the government which is what the judiciary is
1: yeah the least dangerous branch because it does not exercise will, but only judgment to quote Alexander Hamilton. So by what standards do they (laughs) exercise that judgment? Right?
0: Yeah. Excellent segue. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this was another suggestion from the Facebook group. So I I forget which user and, you know, probably we shouldn't mention people. We shouldn't, we shouldn't mention names anyway, but anyway, you'll know who you are, but Today, what we're going to talk about for the main topic of conversation is originalism and its alternatives as a judicial philosophy.
1: Yeah. So a few caveats to get out of the way when talking about this. Uh, Where to go first?
0: (laughs) It's a big topic. You know, there's lots of angles. So, First
1: of all, we're we're talking about judicial philosophies, which is different from judicial methodologies. So last week we talked about the Blackstonian method as a method that originalists can use. That's not what we're talking about today. We're not talking about the mechanics of, you know, what steps do you go through when interpreting a law. We're just going to talk about sort of broad, big picture things that different sorts of judges will do when assessing their duty as a judge, when looking at a case. So we're not going to get into the weeds on that. If we want to go into a deeper dive into one of those things in a future episode. I think that's definitely something we can do, but we're definitely not gonna have the time to do that today. So these are interpretive philosophies we're gonna be talking about. Second thing to keep in mind, there's really two categories of interpretive philosophy. So there's really only two different philosophies you can have. Textualist, which means that you regard the text of a statute or the constitution as controlling that statute or constitution's meaning, and (laughs) non-textualist, which means that you regard something else as controlling that statute's meaning. And even most non-textualists will still at some point make recourse to the text because you just have to do that. So most of them exist under those umbrellas. And then there's a lot of people out there too, a lot of judges out there, who are textualists with regard to statutes. So US code, state code, and not textualists with regard to the Constitution. I don't want to belabor that too much. I think that I'll probably note it as it comes up in this discussion. But just know, these are interpretive philosophies for any whatever kind of written law comes before a judge. And last point before we jump into the different philosophies. Actually, second to last point before we jump <laughs> into the actual philosophies. This question only comes up of interpretive philosophies because we live in a common law system. So common law, as we know, is all the law that existed from time immemorial, and judges have their own way of interpreting that. There's canons of interpretation for that. United States, obviously, is a system in which legislatures also write law. So a lot of what we're dealing with is the interaction between those judge-made common law rules and statutory law or constitutional law. So that's a lot of why this problem exists. It's going to look different in other countries. And then the last point that I want to make is we're sort of picking the labels for these different interpretive philosophies. Most people who aren't textualists or originalists aren't going to tell you their interpretive philosophy. <laughs> they're just going to tell you they're a judge. Yep. They tend not to like strictly formalistic ways of doing things, so, yep. You know, they will not necessarily espouse one of these views, but we are going to try to categorize the different ways the judges tend to interpret things. Most judges end up being a combination of these, but as Lex Rex has insisted and will continue to insist, the tech, if a law is written, the text controls. So yeah. that's going to be the first thing we talk about is textualism. That is a... I don't know if you want to call it a particular application of originalism. I would say textualism is originalism. So so the originalism that the Lex Rex Institute is going to advocate, this is in all of our legal work, it applies to both statutory as well as constitutional law, is what I'm going to call a textualist originalism. And the way that I would describe that is we believe that when looking at the text of any written law, we say that words mean what they would have conveyed to a reasonable person at the time that they were written.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, obviously, this needs to take into account the fact that general terms can obviously embrace later technological innovations. You know, if if I wrote a law in 2022 that referred to aircraft, that's still going to apply to whatever an aircraft looks like 200 years from now, yeah. even though I anticipate full well that I can't know... What the aircraft in 200 years are going to look like i i think that people that live then will be able to recognize what is an aircraft according to the way that we would have understood aircraft when we wrote the statute yeah so that's our interpretive philosophy that's how it works a lot to answer legal questions then you end up looking at relevant legal commentaries from when a statute or constitution was ratified you look at what bargain people thought they were getting when it comes to the constitution so To us, the state ratifying conventions would be extremely relevant to the interpretation of the Constitution. Constitutional convention debates, less so. You know, when they wrote the Constitution, they actually intentionally sealed those for 30 years because they didn't want that to be influential in people's interpretation of the Constitution. So I would say that's less relevant. Although you could look at it if you were trying to understand, you know, I just don't know what this section means and I want some insight into what they were thinking. But it wouldn't be authoritative.
0: Yeah. You know, so, this is something we talked about last week that you sort of start from a, a core sort of determinant of meaning, which would be the text itself. And then to resolve ambiguities, you may need to get a little further afield as you go. But yeah, obviously well, you start with the text.
1: And, and that's that's ultimately why we think that textualism and textualist originalism are sort of. If not the best interpretive methodology. Sort of the only one, because everybody else to various other extents are rejecting that. Everybody's got to start with the statute. Yeah. Everybody has to understand that statutes were written within a the context. There's no way they can avoid that. Yeah. We're just saying you shouldn't also start inserting your own will and your own policy preferences in addition to that, no matter how you want to mask those policy preferences. And part of the trend toward that sort of judging, judging that does insert preferences about policy, is going to come from, for lack of a better way to put it, sort of a modernist assault that's taken place on the idea that judges can really be objective. And yeah. sort of what people have done in response is they said, well, because judges can't be objective, because really this old common law maxim about, trying to discover what the law actually, in fact, was, what pre-existing law was, that's that's always been just sort of a charade. Their response is to say, well, we're going to embrace that, and we're going to insert our own opinions anyway. Right. You know, I think even if, even if that's true, to whatever extent that's true, that a lot of the things we come up with, rationales for things, are just sort of ways of, making prettier or tying a neat bow on the fact that we're inserting our own preferences. Even if that's true, I would say, nevertheless, judges ought to be minimizing that as much as they possibly can, even if that's a low amount.
0: Yeah, no, and So, I think it mirrors a general trend in philosophy and particularly, you know, yeah, What they call the linguistic turn in philosophy, which was Yeah, and
1: one of the one of the schools. So I've I've divided all the different interpretive philosophies into categories. One mm-hmm. of them I think is going to strike you as very similar to the linguistic movement.
0: Okay. All right. So I'll let you I'll let you give your taxonomy, I guess, and then we can, you know, Okay. Get, sure, get fair enough.
1: How do we want to do it? Do you want to just list all the different categories first and then get into them or just sure. go through yeah. them one by one? Okay. Well, before we do that, keep in mind, really only two Textualism and non-textualism. And then before we jump into those philosophies, I want to give a quotation from Judge Learned Hand. You know, kind of a great name for a judge. Certainly one of the most (laughs) well-respected judges. And what he said is, many sages have spoken on statutory construction. And I do not know that it has gotten us very much further. There's a lot of different theories out there, and wherever there's a field that has lots of different theories, you invariably run into people saying, well, lots of people disagree on this. How can you know what's right? Yeah. I, I don't think that holds much water at all. The no. fact that lots of people think something wrong does not make what is right any less obvious, and I hope that we're going to make that case to you today for yep. why really textual originalism is the only possible approach. All right, so I'm going to give you guys the list first, and then we'll dive into sort of a deeper look at what each of these means. These are categories that I've put together. David, you might want to change the name of some of them to make them a little bit clearer, but just (laughs) remember, these are all going to be forms of non-textualism. I think it makes more sense to discuss those than it does originalism, because originalists are pretty much going to agree on their basic principles. They may disagree on the extent to which textualism ought to apply to that original meaning of a, of a statute or the constitution or whatever. But they're going to agree that we are trying to determine what it originally meant. So yeah. here, these are the folks that don't care about determining what it originally meant and also don't really care about the text. So these are non-textual, non-originalist philosophies. First one's going to be consequentialism. The second one is related to consequentialism. It's called legal realism. Next, we've got purposivism, then what I'm going to call cooperative partners theory, then intentionalism, which is different from purposivism, and then uh, lastly, what I don't have a better word for than the theory of the Kantian judiciary.
0: All right, that's what I'm going to call it. Hopefully, I'll, you know some of our listeners have taken some courses and. In- German idealism and can talk about Kant, but if we'll not, to... you're
1: gonna get you're gonna get a little bit of a course on that today.
0: Yeah, I'll have From to David. see what what I'll have to see <laughs> what exactly you mean by that, and then maybe we can come up with a better title. But
1: <laughs> I hope so. I couldn't think of anything else. But anyway, first one we're gonna look at. Oh, and and I mentioned this briefly earlier, but just keep in mind, most people who adhere to these are not gonna describe themselves this way. They're just gonna call themselves judges, and then yeah. they may give you a description of their philosophy. They're not gonna call it an ism because they don't like to be bound by formalist rules if they did they would be originalist textualists. so
0: (laughs) more more or less yeah
1: yeah so first one's going to be consequentialism we can also call that pragmatism or workability Yeah, i'm sure you're familiar with that from general philosophy in the law it actually has sort of the same progenitor that it does in general philosophy and that's going to be jeremy bentham Mm -hmm. who famously wrote a response to Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England, saying that he didn't like those commentaries because it interpreted English law as, well, sort of the whole Ciceronian approach of trying to find what was true about the law and uh, attaining to a higher law, basically. He said, there is no higher law. Law is that which promotes good social outcomes, Yep. He famously stated it as the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people. So a pragmatist, a consequentialist is going to stress that judges should have opinions that are sensible, that produce desirable results, and these are going to be your living constitution, folks. We talked about that in a video that came out a while ago. We called it How to Read the Minds of the Founding Fathers. If you don't know what living constitution means, you can take a look at that. But basically, it's the idea that the constitution ought to change and evolve with the times. Yep. Because there's just no way the founding fathers could possibly have anticipated the needs of people 250 years later. So that's pragmatism, consequentialism. Any comments on that, David?
0: Well, I think hopefully just from the you know the way you presented it very briefly, I think one big problem should become very evident. Who gets to decide what a socially beneficial outcome is? And the judge.
1: Well, right. The judge gets to pick and
0: that. If he happens to disagree with what most people do or what, you know, maybe even reasonable people would think would be a good social outcome, then it's probably not going to be a great decision, at least from most people's perspective. Now, very
1: frankly, and I I don't mean this is not making light of this at all, but this philosophy and other ones like it are why people would try to assassinate justices.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, and I think that's not an
1: exaggeration people people differ very strongly on yeah. what a desirable outcome is particularly on things like abortion yeah or gun rights
0: and when you when you adopt this as your philosophy of law this is what law is supposed to be this is how law is supposed to be done then you just not only accept but embrace the idea that it is just a contest of strength basically who can get the most people to endorse their view in positions of power. And that's, you know, that's suddenly the key to the whole law. And, you know, and I think...
1: It, it actually, it reminds me of... You're going to laugh at this, but it reminds me of a scene from a terrible movie, Star Wars Episode Two, where <laughs> Anakin and Padme are in that field with those big weevil things. And then he says, we should have a system where people sit down, decide what's in the best interest of everybody, and then decide what to do. Mm-hmm. And then Padme says... Yeah, but the problem is people don't always agree on that. And then his response, do you remember his agree. response? Someone yeah, should somebody shouldn't make them agree.
0: Yeah, and then that person... It's is remarkably
1: up. prescient from George Lucas. But, <laughs> I mean, that's the fundamental problem with saying judges just ought to prioritize things that have the best outcomes.
0: Yeah, and, you know, the, the irony was further underscored by the fact that he basically said he, he would be the one to make them agree. So... I don't you know. think he
1: said that. I think the audience was supposed to infer that because we know that, spoiler alert, he becomes Darth Vader later.
0: Maybe I'm misremembering that scene. I don't know. I don't <laughs> like that movie. It's been a long time.
1: It's not a great one. Not a great it. one. But that was a, that was a unusual and, and welcome scene of, of prescience from George Lucas. Yeah. All right. So a related concept to consequentialism, pragmatism is going to be what we call legal realism. And this actually is a formal theory. Back in the early 20th century, people would have described themselves. They would have said, I am a legal realist. Some people still say that. Certainly the hard version of it is no longer really subscribed to by many people at all. But a lot of people are soft legal realists. So what's legal realism? Well, legal realists claim that they like to take the law as it actually is, not as it is in some imaginary world of what laws are supposed to be like. Whenever anybody approaches you with that sort of description of what their philosophy is like, that person's selling you snake oil because we know what things are like already, right? That's the Everybody is addressing things as they are. People that have conceptual or theoretical frameworks to describe things are people who are trying to systematize that so that they can presumably get a better, more efficient, more practicable, more just administration of whatever that thing is. But anyway, what yeah. legal realism tries to do is be empirical about the law. So they look at you know, what's actually being disputed in this case. What's the interest that the plaintiff is trying to protect and what's the interest the defendant's trying to protect? And then they tend to view laws as instrumental. Laws serve social ends. Therefore, rulings must be fair. They must have balance between both of those parties. So, this might lead you, at least I hope this might lead you to the concept of...
0: A balancing test.
1: Balancing tests. Yep. And sure enough, we get a huge proliferation of balancing tests in the 20th century as legal realism accedes the dominance in judicial interpretive philosophy. This is gonna be rooted in the philosophy of Dewey, John Dewey, he's a famous educator, I claim to be very empirical about his approach. Typically people who claim to have empirical approaches for things that are not subject to hypothesis and tests, are, that's really just a marketing thing. (laughs) I don't know that it's any more empirical. Um,
0: <laughs> rarely, but you know uh, it it reminds me, apparently, you know, this is very much unrelated, but apparently the early impressionists, you know, the you know, the painting school, they claimed yeah, they claimed that their way of depicting things, which you know, tends to be sort of very gauzy and sort of almost indistinct looking, but they marketed it early on, apparently, according to at least to a biography I read of Van Gogh as being a more scientific approach to the depiction of light. And that one always struck me as a little off base.
1: Yeah, but. that was, there was a period of time in the late 19th century through about the mid 20th century where everything was scientific. It's like, you you know yeah. how, if you have a platform now, it's called whatever plus or whatever. Yeah max or something like that for a while it was just scientific whatever it was just they slapped that onto whatever they wanted to do and said hey it's scientific now you know Karl marx had scientific socialism and yeah darwin had well social Darwinists. we got scientific social theory now and then legal realism was your scientific legal theory it's not actually any more scientific it's certainly more positivistic but no more scientific
0: yeah it's positivistic
1: is that a word we know
0: positivistic may not be a word people know but it's fine.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, just, we
0: can use it. it
1: Especially because pe- people some people who
0: really did describe themselves as legal positivists. So
1: Yeah. Well, and that, that would have been the legal realists, too. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, here's a quotation from Robert Benson. He's a legal scholar. He says, most lawyers and judges tell a story about legal interpretation that is simply a scam. The truth is there is no such thing as just following the law. Every judge, every lawyer, every interpreter always makes law, never finds it when reading a legal text. And their personal views inescapably play a central role in the making. So that's sort of what I talked about earlier. They sort of see themselves as having the wool pulled from over their eyes, red-pilled, if you will. Uh, <laughs> they they no longer believe the ancient lies about when a judge issues an opinion, they're just discovering these pre-existing laws that were written into nature or by nature's God or what have you we're just figuring out what works for people as they actually are. You know, that's sort of the attitude they take on this.
0: Yeah. Anyway, that's, well, I'll wait until we're done to, to jump in on something, but there, again, it's, this is going to come up again.
1: Yeah. Several of them have this attitude. So it's, get it's, it's, it's
0: striking how much this just mirrors developments and other yes. fields of philosophy. Yes. But anyway. yeah,
1: it's, it's law, law tends to lag behind developments in the rest of philosophy by a 20 to 30 years, but it, it does just go along the same thing. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we're stuck with past rulings. I don't know that we should try to have judicial opinions that are ke- in keeping with the fashions, you know? Yeah. I don't know that we ought to have bell-bottom judicial rulings in the 1970s or, or I, I, I mean, guess it would be in the, in the 2000s if it's 30 years behind.
0: But. Yeah, but, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> know, well, 90s right now, but yeah, you know, you could make a pretty strong case that we do have, for lack of a better term, some bell bottom rulings, and that's actually. Yeah, I mean, I, you I want to do take have a minute to, uh, to say because we we talked about asking for a bit of listener feedback on this. One of the things we're considering doing on the the podcast in the future is sort oh, of. Oh, this a, is a good one. Listen up, uh, guys. Oh, uh, whatever the opposite of a greatest hits is, I guess worst flops of the Supreme Court
1: we're going to call it the hall of shame. Yeah. The Supreme court hall of shame. Yeah. And we're going to each week or maybe every other week, we haven't decided yet. We're going to look at some of the worst opinions Supreme court's ever issued. Some of those ones that they might look like that picture, of your dad from the 1970s, where he's wearing that ridiculous suit with the super wide lapels and the bell bottoms. They're just opinions that did not age well Yeah, at all. Anyway.
0: So, <laughs> you know, we, we thought that was an interesting idea, but we'd love to hear, you know, people's thoughts on that. If that's something you'd be interested in hearing, you can let us know about that on Facebook or YouTube or, you know, wherever it is that you're finding our stuff. We'll put
1: up a poll. On on yeah. the Facebook page you mentioned earlier, we'll put up a poll. Do you want Supreme Court Hall of Shame?
0: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, back to the, the main yeah. scheduled programming.
1: So next one's going to be purposivism. This is probably the dominant theory today, although... Originalism and textualism may be replacing it if, honestly, they may have already replaced it at this point. Yeah. Actually, Scalia mentions in his book, Reading Law, he says, Lawyers today are not trained canons of interpretation. They're not trained in how to read legal texts. Uh, What he says that lawyers were trained to do, he says, American legal education has long been devoted to training of common law lawyers and hence common law judges. What aspiring lawyers learn in the first formative years of law school is how to discern the best most socially useful answer to a legal problem and how to distinguish the prior cases that stand in the way of that solution he says they don't learn canons of interpretation you know that was really true when he was going to law school that was really true even probably 10 15 years ago that's not true anymore he wrote that book in 2012 (laughs) it was probably true in 2012 it's no longer true I mean, it's probably still true at places like Harvard. You probably hear me be very critical of Harvard. That's why, because they're not (laughs) actually teaching their students the law. But a lot of this has been remedied in large part thanks to Justice Scalia. So that's sort of an aside as well. But back to the concept of purposivism. So what's that? Well, purposivism considers the purpose of a law, the reason that law was written. And you might say, that sounds really appealing. We shouldn't go with something that might be absurd or unjust, we should look at the reason we have the law in the first place. Okay, if you say that, watch our video, How to Read the Minds <laughs> of the Founding Fathers, but we'll also yeah. respond to it right here. <laughs> but uh, w- what a this would look at is things like legislative history. So when Congress passes a bill, that goes to a committee. That committee has tons of research that it does, uh, writes a bunch of reports. That's all considered legislative history. Yep. That's what the uh, purposivists would look at. They would say that's relevant in construing the meaning of a text. Oh, construing. Uh, so, interesting. so my use of the word construing there actually reminds me. So if a judge interprets a law, we refer to that as judicial interpretation, right? If a judge construes a law, what do we call that?
0: Well... You could call it construal, but I think the, the typical... If you,
1: want, if you want one that ends in the I-O-N, what do it, you call that? I think that? the
0: typical use would be construction.
1: Construction, yeah. And, and that's for years and years and years been used in the law to refer to when a judge construes the meaning of a text.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It means practically the exact same thing as interpretation. But in the past 140 years or so, people have basically forgotten how English works. And I've actually heard people, generally not lawyers, you know, thank goodness, but th- in things like the New York Times, I hear people say things like, well, when the judge constructed that law, Ooh, meaning yeah. when the judge construed a meaning of that law.
0: Yeah, you don't want to, uh, yeah, you, you don't want am that. To I be a am I being petty
1: here? Am I making a silly kind of petty point?
0: No, you know. It, you know why it's, it, it you know why it's be... not a silly
1: and a petty point? Why? I'm pretty convinced the majority of these non-textualist views are because people have forgotten that when we refer to judicial construction, we do not mean constructing. I mean, I think they've gotten the job of a judge wrong because they don't know what construction refers to.
0: I'm going to, I'm going to go again, you know, veer off the base pads a little bit here and (laughs) indulge in in a bit of a uh, tangent here, but there's this idea, and those of you who have read 1984, will know this idea. logomachy But, well, no, no, that's not what I was yeah. going with. But it, it's very similar. Those of you who have read 1984 will recognize the description of this, even if you don't know the term. But there is a, a uh, concept in linguistics called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. And that basically yes. said... <laughs> yeah, that, different from
1: Mr. Whorf. Yeah. Um, Star and
0: Trek. Th- there's a strong version and a weak version. I don't believe in the strong version. I think very few people probably do. But I am a committed believer in the weak version. And basically, the spear wharf hypothesis says that the language that you use for things, the language that you know for things, in the strong version controls and in the weak version influences the way you think about them. And I think that's very true and very relevant here. You're you're probably right that if, if we you talk about... If you think of about, judges
1: as people who are constructing something, yeah. as opposed to merely construing meaning,
0: right. totally changes the job. Yeah, and... I, I do think there's a pejorative term in my mind, pejorative, maybe they don't mean it to be. But when people talk about what common law is, they often talk about law being made from the bench that is made by yeah. the judges. Yeah, I think that's and that I, I wasn't a sure the
1: effect. right place. I wasn't sure the right place to get into that. I alluded to it earlier, sort of legal tradition since the days of Aristotle, at least really comes into it into full swing with Cicero He's an ancient Roman, for those of you who don't know, sort of the most famous lawyer. 2,000 years ago, this idea comes into full swing, and it's really been sort of the influencing principle behind our laws since then, is the concept of natural law.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's taken different forms and manifestations over time. But what natural law says is that there is a higher law written in nature which mankind sees imperfectly, but may come to know through really repeated trial and practice of right reason, I think is how Aristotle or Cicero talks about that. That's what judges were seen to do in common law systems for centuries and centuries and centuries. So when you hear a case as a judge and you create a new legal rule to deal with that case, you are not creating new law. You are further explicating the higher law. So we've got a statute. When a judge adds to it, that's just getting greater specificity of what this law written in nature dictates. That's the concept that Robert Benson called a scam. He says that's not true. Judges never did that. Yeah, we're pretty sure it's true. At least the judges thought they were doing that. You know, even if they weren't able to do that, even if there actually was no higher law, You take your job very, very differently when you think that all you're supposed to do is further explicate a pre-existing legal standard for greater specificity in future situations rather than actually truly creating something new. Yeah. That's the difference. There's a huge difference there between changing something and elaborating on something, giving more detail on something. Huge difference.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it strikes me we should probably do an episode at some point on common law versus statutory law or you know versus you know e- yeah. e- even like just the history of that we could talk about napoleon a little bit but anyway ne-
1: needless to say there's a lot of intersecting and overlapping concepts here i had yeah. to really struggle to just get it down to the philosophies and obviously you can see that i am deviating a bit but i was talking about purposivism yeah yeah these are also sometimes going to be your living so i'll it's been a bit, so I'll redefine purposivism. That mean, That's where you believe that judges ought to seek the purpose for which a law was written rather than looking at the text. These are sometimes also going to be your living constitution folks, but they're going to take a slightly different angle from the consequentialist ones that I talked about earlier. What they're going to point to is the fact that the constitution doesn't really read like a statutory code. It's pretty short. Yep. Most of what it says is not exhaustive, you know, it doesn't have long lists of all the things that it applies to, they would say the Constitution was written in intentionally broad and flexible terms, such that it would be suited to function as a dynamic and living document. I don't think there's much credence to that at all. People who make that argument... I referenced earlier, you can be a textualist with respect to statutory law without being a textualist with respect to the Constitution. Most people who make this argument would probably be statutory textualists. Right. But they think that the Constitution is a living document. Frankly, this position's got a lot more credence than the other one as far as living document Constitution is concerned. I just... Maybe I'm just dense, but... I kind of question why somebody would write a constitution at all. Why have a written standard if you want it to be flexible? It seems to me you make something short and succinct because you want to make sure that it's respected.
0: Yeah. Well, and I I think there's a couple common errors that I think are often in that kind of view. One is I think people sometimes mistake the constitution for a different kind of document entirely. And they want to read it. We've talked about this before. like A set
1: f- of principles, you know, Declaration yeah. of the Rights of Man or that sort of right. thing. And partly, I think the Bill of Rights created that confusion when it yeah. didn't lump those rights into Article One, Section 9. But that confusion exists for whatever yeah. reason.
0: And I think, yeah, so people read the Constitution as though it's the kind of document that intends to give a statement of political principle. In the American context, that's completely wrong. There are some countries in the world where that is what their Constitution does. And surprise, surprise, it makes it very difficult yeah. to interpret their Constitution. And in fact,
1: the preamble ought to make it clear that that's wrong. Because it says in order to form a more perfect union, and then it says the things we want to accomplish, they aren't statements of like we want a more equitable society or we want to make sure that liberty is given the highest paramount importance. It's pretty clear they're setting up a structure here.
0: Right. Yeah. If you you want the sort of the American founding era version of that, I think you look at the Declaration of Independence much earlier than you look at the Constitution.
1: Yeah, well, that's it's still different. It's still different.
0: But it's got much more where it's like saying, you know, these are the things that we think are a bedrock of society. The, the first, All men the are first couple people. paragraphs yeah. of yeah. the
1: Declaration of Independence, you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. because The, the yeah. Bill of
1: Particulars, I don't think that yeah, would apply. No,
0: that, that is a very specific sort of historical argument. It's a I legal think. complaint. Yeah. But yeah, I think the, the beginning of the Declaration of Independence is the only thing in American history that's close to the kind of document that you get out of the French Revolution or that you get Th- in a that's lot of modern republics where their constitution is basically you know a statement of what they would like their society to be
1: right that's the for those who aren't aware that's the we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights Uh, that section is what david's referring to here yeah i you know i recoil a little bit when you say that it's similar to what other countries implement (laughs) nowadays just because it's orders of magnitude better <laughs> but, but at least in terms of its aim and goals, I can see what you're saying. Yeah, you know, yeah that's statements you know. statements of broad principle, things that right. we're trying to respect.
0: Right. And if you look to the Constitution for that, which is what you know, I think a lot of people make these appeals, and I think you're right that it is conditioned by the Bill of Rights because they look at things like, oh, freedom of speech, freedom's a word we like, and that sort of has aspirations to it. That's what the Constitution's about. It's really not and you'd be extremely disappointed if you read the actual body of the constitution that way because you're just It is a, get...
1: it's a, it's about creating a system that will preserve the yeah. blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity.
0: Exactly. But you're... it's not
1: about defining liberty. No, you in
0: you know if you They already
1: knew what that was. That yeah. there's there's common law on that.
0: Yeah. So, if you're looking for something sort of stirring and aspirational and a statement of values, you're not going to find it when it says, "Oh, and Congress can, you know, establish a post office. Congress can't, you know, if you want to raise it might a tax, bring a tear to my eyes, but probably not most people. <laughs> if you want to raise a tax, it has to be proposed in the House of Representatives. Um, like, oh, you know, <laughs>
1: that's pure words have never been written.
0: But anyway, it's just it's. I think that the, the people who want to drive us more toward a living constitution concept they want to play on that notion that the constitution is really just about like the sort of thing we'd like our society to be you'll you'll find
1: most of the most of these theories rest on fundamental misunderstandings whether it's a linguistic misunderstanding yeah a misunderstanding of a text like the constitution misunderstanding of history frankly they're just kind of mistaken yeah Uh, but back to purposivism
0: (laughs) yeah sorry (laughs)
1: So there can be more than one purpose for a statute, uh, and they place those purposes sort of on a ladder. And that's sort of my criticism of the idea of purposivism as well, is that that ladder very easily can be a ladder of abstraction, right? Because say that you have a law against pickpocketing. Well, what's the purpose of that law? In the narrowest sense, it's the prevention of theft, right? We don't want stuff to be stolen. You could also broaden that, right? You could say more generally, it's protective of private property. Yeah. And then you could go more general than that. You could say it's it's, it's intended to preserve a system of private property ownership. And you could even go broader than that. You could say we want to preserve property ownership because we want to encourage productive activity. By enabling producers to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Yep. And you you could, you could don't even have to stop there, right? No, you could go yeah. even one step higher. Say it's for the common good.
0: Yeah. We, we want a prosperous society. We want everyone to benefit from a prosperous society. You can make it as, you know, as detached. As specific
1: yeah. or as general as you want, depending yep. on the outcome you are trying to achieve as right. a judge. Yep. Because, <laughs> you know, it could be that you don't think you're going to get a great outcome if you say the purpose of this law is to prevent people from having their persons robbed, but you might get an outcome that you want. If you say it's for the further into the common good. Yep. Yeah. So that's why I think purposivism is very, very arbitrary because you can, again, you can give any level of abstraction to that. It's open for whatever ruling you might want to arrive at. It's Lord Devon, an English Lord. He has a famous quotation where he says, five judges are no more likely to agree than five philosophers. Upon the philosophy behind an act of parliament and five different judges are likely to have five different ideas of the right escape route from the prison of the text. Mm-hmm. I think that's very well said. Yeah. And it's, you know, these are, I'm sure you've heard people talk about the spirit versus the letter of the law. Yeah. That's purposivism. People who talk that way, those are legal purposivists. You know, we're all in favor of interpreting a law according to its spirit, but we stand with John Marshall in saying that the spirit is collected chiefly from its words. Yeah. That's how you know the spirit of a law. You look at what it says. Mm -hmm. Next is gonna be judges as cooperative partners with the legislature. I think this is the one that really runs into that construction problem that I talked about, that think that it means constructing laws. These are people that think that judges are actually supposed to be involved in getting good laws. David, you—I don't remember if we did a piece on this or if you just sent me an article from the Harvard Law Review a couple months ago.
0: Which one was? Oh, was this the the labor unions thing? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I don't—I don't think we ever actually published anything about that, but I remember. It was something
1: about to. how it was undemocratic, though. Yeah,
0: it's. Remember uh, that
1: how. How overruling a, a, something made by a regulatory body was undemocratic. Oh, oh, I don't n- remember the details. N- n-
0: no, um, th- this was a different thing. That wasn't uh, That wasn't a Harvard Law Review. That was Vox. That was Ian Milheiser. Boy, who, it's
1: pretty telling that I confused the two, isn't <laughs> it?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, he said that, that. That was about the OSHA case. You know, we, we keep referring to this OSHA article, but uh, I mean.
1: It's if, a good article. Uh, well. <laughs> you guys ought to read it.
0: <laughs> anyway.
1: David did really good work on that one. Well,
0: thank you don't like to toot my own horn, but anyway, yes. What, what he said though, was that the, okay. So basically the Biden administration acting through OSHA wanted to implement this policy that would require big employers to impose a vaccine requirement on their employees. Or, you know, if you weren't going to be vaccinated, had to be tested on your own time and money, I think weekly. And the Supreme court struck that down saying OSHA didn't have the, you know, the authority to do that. And <laughs> One of the articles that was published in the aftermath complaining about it said that's so undemocratic that an unelected body would strike down something that OSHA did. And there's something that was made by
1: an unelected bureaucrat. Yeah, I mean, but even so, even viewing the Supreme Court as an element in our democracy is suggesting that Supreme Court has a role in the creation of law. That would be this cooperative partner theory. Right. I don't know that I have much to say about why it's wrong because it's fairly obviously wrong. You know, judges it, it interpret the law. You should have learned that in fifth grade civics. Uh, construe the law. Yep. They don't construct it. Yep. But it, its I guess the one point I will make is that it grossly misunderstands the common law tradition yep. for exactly the reasons that we talked about earlier. It's, and, you know, what- Judges were tasked with finding the law not with making the law. They never did that, even in England. That was never how a judge would have conceived of it. That was never the task that a judge considered himself to be doing. It was always finding this natural law.
0: Yeah. And I think we talked about this several weeks ago now when we were talking about the leaked brief and we were talking about in broad terms what Roe v. Wade and and, uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey were about. I think we we mentioned there, like, this idea that the Supreme Court has sometimes seemed to have that it's supposed to sort of fill in the deficiencies of legislation. Like, yeah. we get what Congress that, was that trying would be, to do. That would be this theory. Exactly. We get what Congress was trying to do. They didn't quite do it right, but we'll fix it for them by interpreting it generally. Robert. Robert. <laughs> we, well, uh, that, that was quite the cough there, and I have no idea, um, you know, any, I didn't hear any muttering under that.
1: No, none at all. None at all. But It's probably more than we want to get into today, but yeah. there, there is a particular opinion that comes to mind when thinking of somebody that, yeah, well, at least in that case, wasn't adherent that, to this thing.
0: That could end up in the Hall of Shame series if we end up doing it.
1: Oh, it should be the first one.
0: Maybe.
1: <laughs> just wait. You're in for probably not a surprise, folks. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next one's going to be, I can't think of any better way to describe this than just... Intentionalism, but this theory basically states that texts have no independent existence from their authors. This one is honestly sort of a fallacy that's assumed by many of the others, but some people will actually directly espouse this theory. Mm -hmm. This one's going to be a favorite of David because it goes into the sort of linguistic concepts he was talking about earlier. But this would view texts as Inherently without meaning, they are only expressions of an author's mind. We actually sort of address this as well in our Living Constitution video. It's worth watching, How to Read the Minds of the Founding Fathers. What this says, and this is a quotation from Stanley Fish. He is a reporter with the New York Times. This is an opinion piece he wrote in, I think, 2005. He said, There can be no textualist method because there is no object, no text without writerly intention, to which would-be textualists could be faithful. And if there is no object, no plain, lucid text to which interpreters could be faithful, neither is there an object to which interpreters could be unfaithful. Consequently, judicial activism, usually defined as substituting one's preferred meaning in place of the meaning of the text clearly encodes, becomes the name of a crime no one could possibly commit. (laughs) After all, you can't overwrite a meaning if it isn't there. Yep that's not satire (laughs) he actually wrote that that's actually his real opinion he was willing to put under what i assume is a real name
0: (laughs) yeah well in this one it gets pretty overtly into the categories that i was thinking of when i mentioned sort of linguistic philosophy and yes one of the sort of the main debates and not even really a debate because there was sort of broad consensus that things had been going one way, but it should be changed in philosophy in the 20th century. But it was the idea of where, what they call the locus of meaning is when it comes to reading locus, like meaning, you know, location center. Yeah. And they talked about this idea of, you know, in the text or outside the text. And then outside the text, you have two options, either like, you know, basically mind of the author or mind of the reader. And yeah. people sort of said, Oh, you know, these pre-modern people who were so like blithely optimistic that you can just like, understand either what an author is thinking or what a text means they thought of it one way but we realize that there's no such thing as reading without interpreting so. we know better now yeah. we have
1: refrigerators
0: right In in this context i guess more like we have friedrich nietzsche now
1: yeah which but, which it's that that is so historically and philosophically ignorant because a great deal of time and devotion was spent on the field of epistemology which yeah. is exactly that yeah. Which? How does language have meaning? How does a sign signify something, you know? But they they were aware of the problem. It's not just that they were so stupid and they didn't think of the possibility that texts couldn't have independent meaning. No, they were aware this was a problem. They yeah. were also aware that two or three or five or a hundred or a thousand people could read the same thing and come away with a lot of the same ideas. Yeah. And they wanted to know, hey, how the heck is that? How does that happen? So rather than just ignoring that that phenomenon exists, it had to justify it.
0: Right. And I, I want to say, like, you know, there are a few things that one is there actually is a kernel of truth, a very, very small kernel of truth. The idea All that, of these,
1: all these have that.
0: Well, that specifically that older legal thinking did try to, you know, center around the mind of the lawgiver. So there, were, there was a period of time where legal theorists were emphasizing that any law was the intent of a sovereign is, is one of the phrases that gets used. So
1: basically, yeah, that was actually a very medieval way yeah. of interpreting law. Yeah, So basically, that, that went out with the common law system.
0: Right. When medieval scholars were trying to, you know, they in up through the Renaissance as well. They're rediscovering Roman law texts and trying to reimpose Roman law because they're like, oh, this is the good stuff. We heard about Rome and how cool it was. Blah, blah, blah. We want some of this.
1: They, they had indoor plumbing. That's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they must have known something.
0: Yeah. And so they, they were didn't have
1: refrigerators, to, but still pretty good.
0: Anyway, and so they were trying to adapt these Roman texts that they found and try to make it work in their own legal systems. And they, one of the things they ended up doing was trying to say, okay, it's the intent of the sovereign. But it's very obvious from, you know, reading anything, basically, and especially reading the documents around the U.S. founding, that... They understood there is a temptation for people to impose their own interest in interpreting. That's one of the yeah. reasons they set up the government the way they did. And that's one of the, the reasons, entire
1: thing you're trying to avoid with a judiciary. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's the inherent risk of finding people to judge cases and controversies is that they will do just that.
0: Right. And so, A, they recognized that, you know, that was a danger, but they also knew that you can develop a skill of recognizing your own interest and trying to isolate it, trying to account yeah. for it. And that's, you know, I think that's, that's something we all learn. We all learn how to, you know, it goes back to kindergarten, even like, you know, I know you want to play with the blocks, but think about how he feels. Let him play with the blocks too. You know, this is a very basic human skill, you know, trying to recognize your own interest and then move past it.
1: And it takes a lot, it takes a lot of work to minimize that. As a judge, it forces you to reach conclusions that you don't always like. Right. It's not that much fun. No. They don't really want to do it. So you can see the temptation to do other things, you know, when they no longer have a kindergarten teacher telling them that they have to consider other people's opinions and preferences, because now they're the big boss man, you know, one of only nine in the country.
0: Yeah. The temptation's
1: overwhelming to stop doing that. So I kind of resent people who are creating this philosophical gloss to justify- Exactly. Bad judging, but that's what these are. That's all these are.
0: Yeah, no, it's, we've talked about this before, but I think, you know, I'll probably say it every time we even come close to this topic. When you adopt the philosophy, that's all that's happening. You're just justifying someone doing it openly, nakedly, and, you know, self-consciously. You're going to make the problem worse.
1: I will be the first to acknowledge I understand humans can never perfectly look at something objective. I understand that your interests will always be there; that you can never totally control for them.
0: Yeah,
1: isn't it worth trying?
0: Right. Even if you can just minimize. Better. Yeah. Even if you can.
1: It's it's the fact that you can't do it perfectly doesn't mean you shouldn't try to do it at all.
0: Exactly. Just
1: embrace the fact that you. That's that's lunacy, and that's the death of society.
0: Anyway, let's go on to your next category.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Where were we? Let's see.
0: I think next up is what you were calling. Oh, yeah, so
1: actually, I, I had one more thing. to. So, okay. so mm-hmm. sometimes one guy, actually, Mark, Mark Tushnet, referred to, he's an intentionalist, and he referred to what he calls the Constitution outside the Constitution. So, you know, we have the Constitution inside the Constitution as manifest by what it says. Well, Mm -hmm. he has one that's outside the Constitution in addition to it. He says, this invisible, unratified document restricts future government choice and consists of whatever is, quote, deeply embedded in our political order. Such as, and he he says, the general social safety net of modern social welfare state (laughs) and the basic structure of modern environmental law and the core provisions of civil rights statutes. That's the constitution outside the constitution.
0: That's a pretty... So this
1: guy basically just really hates the fact that we have a written constitution at all, wants us to be much more similar to the English constitution.
0: Yeah, and it... I feel like it should give you pause that, like, you know, if you think about this, basically none of those things he just described, actually, you know, quite literally none of those things he just described existed, like, a century ago what is it going to look like in another century? What will they say is the constitution outside the constitution if they're following the same principle?
1: Well, and and you might wonder what does this make of the constitution inside the constitution? Is it just totally irrelevant in this view? Well, no, he's actually got an answer to that. Uh He says it does matter because, and this is a quotation because it provides the structure through which we act politically politically to get our representatives to enact the statutes that will become part of the constitution outside the constitution. Mm (laughs) Okay. The written constitution is just a way of achieving political goals that actually matter.
0: That's very interesting.
1: That's one word for it. All right, next theory.
0: Yeah, yeah, we we need to keep it moving. So I'll let that one go, I guess.
1: All right, so the next theory, this is the one that I'm calling the theory of the Kantian judiciary. And I think this is probably best exemplified by a learned hand quotation. We quoted him earlier, very famous judge. This was not what he believed, but he was describing the way that some judges worked or were encouraged to work. And he said that this is the theory that a judge, quote, must conform his decision to what honest men would think right. And it is better for him to look into his own heart to find out what that is. So this is the idea that judges should just do what's right, you know, do justice. (laughs) Yeah. I hear this from a lot of people, usually I think people that haven't thought about it very much, but they just say, you know, judges should do what is right. They should do justice. Yeah. In fact, I actually hear this from, I hear this from a lot of folks really of a variety of political persuasions. You can be on the right or the left and say this, you know, judges just ought to do what is right. It doesn't matter what the written law of man says. What matters is this higher law, which they can know best by looking into their own hearts to determine it.
0: Okay. I, I see now why you chose the, the, the word Kantian for this. He famously said that basically the, the way to know what was right was just to sort of intuit it. Um, and yeah. I guess, you know, maybe a, a more... Accessible term would just be sort of moralism here, but
1: yeah, it's it's and the funny thing is it's actually a lot like the consequentialist view. It's just rather than getting good social outcomes for your law, it's, it's just having good, you know, morally yeah. right rule. Yeah, yeah. And,
0: but again, subject to the same fundamental flaw, which is who People are don't we don't agree on? Yeah, that. <laughs> who are we trusting to know what's right? And yeah,
1: I, I mean, th- this is sort of, you, sort of the. I, I hate to be this. It's almost snide, but like the the six-year-old's conception of what a judge does. Yeah. You, you know, ju- judges are just sort of the, the town elders. They're the wisest people in our society. Yeah, they, they, and we've picked them to hear cases and controversies because we know their judgments are generally pretty good.
0: Yeah. They help the good people and they punish the bad guys.
1: Yeah. Thomas C. Gray, another another legal commentator, says that... He, he holds to this view, and he says, judges are to improvise basic national ideals of individual liberty and fair treatment, even when the content of those ideals is not expressed as a matter of positive law in the written Constitution. And that's another view.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the things I think runs true through a lot of these alternatives, if not all of them, is that they really seem to have a problem with the fundamental concept of written law. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that there is something and it's just like, oh, I just have to do what this slip of paper tells me to do it. Well, yeah, actually.
1: (laughs) Yes. But at least part of this comes from the fact that we're a common law system. Yeah. And judges are used to acting in sort of two different domains. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's probably part of the confusion. That's if I'm being real charitable on this.
0: Yeah. But I, I think part of it is just that there is something that seems to scandalize certain people about saying like, oh, so I should ignore all these other principles because what you're telling me the law is happens to be this one particular thing and it doesn't fit with what everyone know." And when I say everyone, you know, you should hear quotes around that because obviously most people will not just naturally agree on everything. But
1: There's very little know. that most people agree
0: on. <laughs> yeah, but you're telling me I should ignore all my good sense and all the things that I know are right because the law says it. Well, yeah, because if we can't agree to follow the law, then rules just come down to a matter of the draw. Basically, you know, which judge did you get? Yeah. Did you get the one who agrees well, with and you it's, or not?
1: It starts to look a lot like arbitrary despotism, frankly. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the thing to keep in mind when discussing any of these legal theories is that our Constitution is really defined by those first three words, we the people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All political power in the United States is derived from the people. Anybody empowered to act is only empowered to do so by the Constitution that the people ratified in their state ratifying conventions. That power must be exercised within those constitutional limits. Yeah. And if we, if the people have chosen, by their representatives, to express their will in a particular codified form, In the statutory code, judges are obliged to abide by that. That's as simple, you know, simple as it gets. That's why they got to do it. Yeah. All other reasons aside, if they aren't doing that, they're tyrants.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's something that's often overlooked about our Constitution is that it's basically, as opposed to, you know, I think what we get trained to think of it as is this sort of like declaration from on high about what the powers of government are it's basically a permission slip to the government from the people saying, Mm -hmm. we're going to let you do these things. And if it's not on there, you can't do it. So I think viewed in that light, it becomes a lot more obvious why you want them to stick strictly to what is written, because that describes the session of power that was, you know, made by us, you know, they're so let it be written.
1: So (laughs) let it be done.
0: Yeah. They're using our (laughs) rights when they do these things, because we, you know, gave them trust over certain aspects of that. All right. And because we're way over time, we're just going to dive right into our last segment. If this is the segment where we review hot takes about the law from the internet, we've been calling it a different thing every week. You can, you know, you'll have to go back and listen to other ones to get all of those names. This time I'm going with one that you proposed last week. I thought it was pretty good. We're going to call it the afterburner.
1: Oh, good. We're going with mine this time.
0: Yeah. With, uh, good. (laughs) Anyway, with, I think that's uh,
1: certainly better than the what was it? Hall La Peña?
0: Hall La Peñas, yes. Yeah. All right.
1: That's just not great.
0: So, let's uh let's just get started then.
1: Okay, so this is a news headline mm-hmm. and the headline reads Chicago mayor Lori Lightfoot says people charged with violent crimes are guilty because prosecutors say so. That's got to be bad reporting, well, right? She can't the, actually have said that.
0: Read the subhead.
1: Okay. Uh, oh, that is a quotation. When those charges are brought, these people are guilty.
0: Gee, Lori, that's not. It, she's an attorney, by the way. Great. And then. Well, this,
1: she's a she's a failed attorney because yeah. she's a mayor now.
0: Yeah, she. But you know, <laughs> she
1: passed the bar. That's when you when you can't succeed in law, you generally go into politics.
0: She did pass the bar, but anyway. And then this is a a, a larger quotation from her. In the article,
1: we shouldn't be locking up nonviolent individuals just because they can't afford to pay bail. But given the exacting standards that the state's attorney has for charging a case, which is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, when those charges are brought, these people are guilty, Lightfoot said. Of course, they're entitled to a presumption of innocence. Of course, they're entitled to their day in court but residents in our community are also entitled to safety from dangerous people. So we need to keep pressing the criminal courts to lock up violent, dangerous people and not put them out on bail or electronic monitoring back into the very same communities where brave souls are mustering the courage to come forward and say, this is the person who is responsible. Okay, no, you are not presuming innocence if you are calling them dangerous people or if you are assuming that they're guilty because the prosecutor has charged them. The prosecutor may internally, in his own mind, say, I want to make sure somebody's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt before I charge them. He's not in charge of making that finding. No. It doesn't really matter if that's his opinion.
0: Yeah. That has
1: no legal relevance at all. The jury's opinion is what has legal relevance there. This is horrendous. Yeah. I don't think that... She's... Isn't she...
0: Pretty left-leaning. Well, she ran certainly a, a campaign that was designed to garner left sympathy. I would say, but from the intel, I think
1: she, she might just hate the rule of law. Like yeah, she might well, not actually. From
0: from the from what I've seen online, everyone of every political stripe is sort of done with her and wants her gone at this point. Um,
1: yeah, that's but- very. I mean, because what she's famous for is, you know, she she had to get a haircut even when they were banned for everybody else because yeah. I'm on TV. I got to get a haircut. So I think she might just have disdain for the rule of law.
0: Yeah. You picked up on the thing that I noticed, too, which was, you know, this, of course, they're entitled to presumption of innocence, but we're going to ignore that. And I- what is it? What do you think presumption of innocence means?
1: Maybe that's just a thing that we say and yeah. doesn't actually mean anything.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All
1: right. Um, let's do, let's do one more. And then, like, at this point, our runtime is going to look like this episode was made out of sheer spite to all the people that told <laughs> us to keep it under an hour. But, yeah. Well, <laughs> I apologize folks. We'll be better in the future.
0: Yeah. So yeah, you're right though. We're going to make this the last one. And this one I'm just going to go with basically because it is another, this is actually a unique one. This is not from any social media thing. I found this in some article that I can't even remember now, but it's just a graphic someone produced, but well, you'll see.
1: Okay, it says humanness according to the three-fifths compromise for whites, for black, oh my gosh, black slaves. And then it has a guy that's filled up, he's like all the way yellow, filled to the top um, with humanness. And then (laughs) the guy that's labeled a black slave is filled up three-fifths of the way, three-fifths human. Yeah, that's, you know, our, our founding fathers when writing a structure for a new government thought it'd be such a great idea to just say, why don't we insert our opinion of how human black people are? <laughs> Which is, yeah. That's something people want to hear, right? Our opinion of how human black people are. Let's put that in there.
0: Yeah, and so-
1: No, that's not what happened. I don't know how anybody thinks that's what happened.
0: No, and I, I think- The one... Three-Fifths
1: Compromise was a compromise, right?
0: And it was a move. So what are the but, two yeah.
1: things people wanted? What's, what's the compromise between? Well, I think... who wants Who wants black people to be full people? Is that the, the, the progressive people who think that they're all equals and that all men ought to be regarded the same? Or who, who wants slaves treated as full people?
0: Yeah, this is the thing that everyone seems to forget, which is that if you were taking the position that the Constitution was too easy on slave owners, you should want slaves to count for zero. Because what it yeah. meant...
1: The people that wanted them to be counted as full people were slave owners in slave states, yeah, because the three-fifths compromise was about representation, yeah, in the House of Representatives. You know how many representatives does your state get? Well, it's based on population. We count up the number of people there, and we decide how many representatives you get.
0: Yeah, so
1: slave states said you should. Well, you have to count all of our slaves. That way, we get more representation than you. Even though the North not obviously gonna... didn't want to do that, they said you don't even treat them as free citizens. Right. You're denying them basic fundamental rights. You're not allowed to count them now that it benefits you. Yeah. And they said, well, we want to, and we're not going to agree to a constitution unless you let us count them. So they settled on, we'll count them as three fifths of a person. This is not a comment on how human they are. The ostensibly racist side of this debate were the ones arguing for them to be counted as full persons. Yeah. The side that cared about The fact that they were in bondage were the ones that wanted to not count them at all, since why should they have political representation if you're not treating them as political actors?
0: Right. Yeah. You're not going to let them actually vote. So you're just appropriating. Well, But they they counted
1: a lot of people who didn't vote. though. Voting was not. the the, But it's people who don't vote are still political actors. You know, they're still actors within political society. They make their own decisions. They could start businesses. They could. Right act in streams of commerce, buy things, sell things. They're still political actors. Slaves act on behalf of a master. Yeah, so what- it, Any action they take is done with implied agency at the very least. They are not political actors. They're they're deprived of their agency in a political context.
0: What it actually means to count, and you know, I, th- I think it bears noting too, the constitution never mentions race and it never mentions the word slave.
1: That was actually a, a, a big debate at the time because yeah. the- I think James Wilson in particular, who was an ardent anti-slavery activist, did not want mention of slavery in the Constitution. He did not want the United States Constitution to be one that would countenance slavery. Right. I think rightly so. Yeah. And that's the way that, that's what ends up getting in the Constitution. We do not have a Constitution that at any point ever countenance slavery. Yeah. But It allowed state governments to have systems of slavery. I mean, reluctantly, many people didn't want that, argued against that. But the federal constitution does not recognize slavery. What it says is that we will count, and it lists all the people you'll count, and then it says three-fifths of all other persons. Right. So people that don't fit the previous description.
0: Yeah. And I think the the better way to think of it in terms of like, you know, if you're trying to wrap your head around what the, you know, the wrong side in this is Counting three-fifths of a person who's a slave is really just adding a fractional person to everyone else who lives in a slave-owning state. You're basically just yeah. adding weight to free people in a slave state that way. And
1: Yeah, because as I mentioned, they are not political actors. The right. slaves aren't. They have no capacity to act politically. They've been legally deprived of that.
0: Right. Anyway...
1: So So this is just, I've I've actually, believe it or not, this is not the first time I've heard this. Yeah. I've actually, I've heard this from, I hate to say, but I've heard this from lawyers before. Yep. You know, that the constitution said that blacks were three fifths of a human. It didn't It's nothing of the sort, said nothing about blacks, said nothing about slaves. And it said nothing about how human anybody is. Right. This, that's, this is just, honestly, this is unforgivably ignorant, but somebody's teaching people this.
0: Yeah, no, that's. I
1: don't know who, and we've got to. It's it's, honestly, like we always make the joke in our past episodes that a dollar a day can keep somebody off Twitter. This one actually is a matter of whose voice is louder. Right. And the people who, for whatever interest, for whatever reason, are trying to get across the idea that all of our founders were horrible racists. And because of that, the Constitution doesn't matter and is entirely invalid. They've been repeating this ad nauseum and it could not be further from the truth. Yeah. So genuinely, you know, if we can get our message further we can counteract that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that Honestly, that's why I picked this one is because this is something I've seen so many times before, but this is the first time I've seen it in such a naked and like weirdly kind of like formalized way. <laughs> I've never seen yeah. someone literally have a graph where humanness is the X axis or excuse me, the Y axis. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's
1: absurd. It's Yeah.
0: So anyway, no, you're generally right though. Like you know, we are interested in educating the public. This is, for whatever reason, sort of like a viral concept in the American public for some unknown reason. And- the, the
1: the intent has to be cannot have any other motivation than undermining people's respect for our institutions. Yeah, that's that's the only conceivable goal.
0: Yeah. So, anyway. Go make a donation, Lexrex.org slash donate. And with that, you know, we are way over time. So I guess we'll wrap it up here. But thanks for listening and we hope you'll come back. All right. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Good night.